It's Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to read verses 18 of chapter 1 down to verse 12 of chapter 2. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all chief priests and the scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word, that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So let me read Galatians 4, verses 4 uh, to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, and God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, I wonder if uh, anyone got a jigsaw for Christmas. Uh, I didn't because I don't have the patience, but I did spy one this morning. And it's uh, one of these nightmare jigsaws. It's of three Labradors, and two of them are black. I don't know how you can do a jigsaw like that. Now, uh, jigsaws are not for me. I might dabble a little bit, but that's my limit. The best I can manage usually is a little section and usually one of the corner sections because there are only four pieces with two straight lines on them. Now, we just read one part, one little part, even though Johnny wanted to read to chapter 12. We just read one little part of the description of the birth of Jesus from Matthew. But that doesn't give us the big picture. But even if we were to read the whole of Matthew's narrative on Jesus' birth, and the whole of Luke's account of Jesus' birth, and John chapter 1, that magnificent reflection on the coming of Jesus Christ, that would simply be just one little part of the jigsaw. Now in order to understand the significance of Jesus' birth, you see the title I've given to this talk, The Magnificent significance of Christmas. In order to understand the magnificent significance of Christmas, you need to read the whole Bible. Now, we don't have time to do that. And nor am I saying that we cannot grasp profound things and moving things from the accounts or verses we read at Christmas. Of course we can, but there is a danger we give a nod to the nativity without apprehending its magnificent significance. Now that's true for us as Christians. Maybe you're not a Christian here, and the stuff that Christians focus on at Christmas, the birth of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, has no uh, relevance. Yesterday, we were out for lunch with a family. We have an annual Christmas lunch, and uh, the granny was telling us about the most marvelous nativity place she'd ever seen this year, and it was a cross between Matthew's Gospel and Strictly Come Dancing. And I thought, there is no way that people will grasp the magnificent significance of this event if it is wrapped in that kind of gloss. To see that baby, though, as your saviour, to stake your life on that child, well, people think that is just pie in the sky. Sometimes I wonder if the reason people think Christmas is irrelevant is because people like me speak about it in such an irrelevant way. Now, we cannot read the Bible this morning from start to finish. We cannot put in every piece in the jigsaw. That would truly be a memorable Christmas sermon. It would be my last ever Christmas sermon. In the New Testament, though, there are one or two short, pithy statements or sections that give us the big picture, like Romans 8, 1 to 5, or Galatians 4, 4 to 7, the passage that we uh, read. Uh, And let's focus on Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, and we'll just tiptoe into 6 and 7 um, at the end. Let's read them again just so they bed down. Do follow with me in the sheets. When the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now let's take it step by step. But when the fullness of time had come. Here's a good question. Why was Jesus Christ born 2,000 years ago in Palestine at that point in world history? Now we could speculate intelligently, like Palestine perfectly positioned at the center of the ancient world. Like the Roman Empire had built roads, the Greek language, a perfect medium to spread the gospel to the nations of the earth. Intelligent speculation, but no more than that, because we can make the case for all sorts of different points in history that it would be the perfect time. For example, now. Can any of you remember Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar? It's definitely generational. Now, don't start to sing the songs. Let me read one for you. It's Judas, I think, who sings these words to Jesus. Every time I look at you, I do not understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Why you choose a backward time in such a strange land? If you'd come today, you would have reached a whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. Don't you get me wrong. I just want to know. But when the fullness of time had come. Now, the answer is not found in intelligent speculation. The answer is found in part by theological understanding. Now, in the context of this Bible book, Galatians, in the preceding chapter, the author, the Apostle Paul, focuses on three characters, the big three characters in salvation history, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. If you were to read Galatians 3 this afternoon, the only person who might do that is me. One of you will text me to say, you did it too, and you'll make my Christmas. Galatians 3 says this, God made a promise to Abraham that through his seed, or in his line, all nations would be blessed, that God would give him, Abraham, more descendants than anyone could count, more than the sand on the seashore. And God's promise, his covenant to Abraham, that God would call a people to himself down through the years of history, was, now mark this, it was a promise with no strings attached. It was a promise with no conditions attached. No laws to obey. No merit before God to establish. No conditions to fulfill. I promise, God said to Abraham, that through you will come a multitude of people that will be my very own. No conditions. Just faith. Which is why Abraham is the example of faith in the Bible. So Abraham is character one in Galatians 3. The second one is Moses. God gave to Moses the law. And at the heart of the law are the Ten Commandments, like you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and so on, down to the second table of the law. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, lie, or covet. 
Now here is a crucial part of the jigsaw. Wake up if you're sleeping, get your mind off the turkey and onto this. It's really important. Your whole life and eternity might matter as you listen. Why did God give the law to his people that he had rescued from Egypt and bring them to the promised land? Why did he give them the law? Why did he give them the law, the Ten Commandments, with its promise of blessing and promises of curse or judgment? Why on earth did God say to them, if you keep perfectly the precepts of the law, if you fulfill perfectly the righteous requirements of the law, we will be as one reconciled in fellowship. Why did God say to them, if you do not keep the precepts of the law, you will be under the curse of the law, which is death and judgment? Why did God set for men and women an impossible standard? Why did he say, you shall have no other gods before me when every human does? Why did he say, you shall not steal, you shall not lie? Why did he say, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or car or donkey? Why did he give us that when it is impossible for sinful men and women to do it? Now, they are good questions. Did God give the law through Moses to trick or trap or taunt his people? Did God say, love me and love me alone? I never mean it. Did God say, love me with all your heart, soul, mind and strength in order to watch us fail? Now God never gave the law, the Ten Commandments and so on and so forth as a ladder for us to climb to get to God. He never gave us the law as a ladder that we can never, ever scale, never reach the top. God gave the law to us as a mirror so that when we try and live up to the law and look at ourselves, honestly look at ourselves, we know that we can't. The law shows us how sinful we are. It humbles us. It breaks us. And then it lifts us up. For it makes us long for a Savior. Now, you often hear me say or preach that religion is a bad thing. Now, by religion, I mean obedience in order to be accepted by God, climbing the ladder. You'll often hear me talk about the gospel, which means I am accepted by God and therefore I obey. Religion is I obey in order to be accepted. I often tell you that religion is destructive. It never leads to assurance. Religion is like living your life before God, like a set of scales. 2018 tipped that way. 2019 tips this way. My three score years and ten, they better tip that way. That is a futile way to live. It is a terrible way to live. But here's why religion is a good thing. Trying to live like that in order to come to terms with the plight of our human state might very well be a good thing. 
I guess, but you say, I keep the law pretty well. I don't lie every day. I don't covet my neighbor's donkey or their four by four. On balance, I love my Lord more than anything else. You might be right. Well done, you. Well done, me. With all my religious potentials. But remember that the order to remove the curse of the law, which is death and eternal judgment, the requirement God sets you and me is sinless perfection. At which point, two things happen. We bow, we bow our heads down. Or the hackles on our neck lift up our heads. We look in the mirror. And we stop climbing the ladder. Or the hackles go up and we climb on. Let me encourage you this Christmas to look in the mirror. We had an 18th birthday party this week. And uh, one of the great advantages of modern technology, phones, that's as far as I get with modern, is that you can take hundreds of pictures so I can edit out the bad ones of me. And the bad ones of me are me looking at, just at an angle now, you get bad pictures of me. The camera never lies. The mirror of the law never lies. Look in the mirror. And you will see what I see when I look in the mirror, a compromised, dirty sinner under a curse who desperately needs a savior. If it makes you feel any better this morning, that is exactly who I am. The more I look in the mirror, the more I do not love what I see. And the more I look to Jesus, I am humbled by how much he loves me. So Abraham the promise, Moses the law to show us we need a savior. And so then Jesus the savior, when the fullness of the time had come. Abraham, Moses, and now Jesus. Now, one last thing on the phrase, when the fullness of the time had come. And you're all thinking, when the fullness of the time comes and he finishes the sermon, it'll be Boxing Day. It won't. It's only 11.22. We're doing well. I think that's all true. When the fullness of the time comes, it's got to be Moses' promise, the law, the mirror, then Jesus. You've got to hold on in your hearts to this promise long ago. Look in the mirror. Live the Ten Commandments. And fail. And look for a solution. Jesus. So there is theological explanation for when the fullness of the time had come. But uh, I think in the end of the day, when the fullness of the time had come, is explained in part by that. But there were a lot of years between Moses and Jesus So it embraces to God's will, God's sovereignty. God's time is God's perfect time. All is ordered, all is determined. The history of the world is set by God when the fullness of the time had come. Now there's a big separate sermon or a sermon series. God's sovereignty over time. Just uh, let your... uh, minds mull over this when you've had enough Brussels sprouts this afternoon. What would it be like in the world if God was not sovereign over time? God is sovereign over all time and he is sovereign over the threescore years and ten that I see in front of me. And so maybe by the same outworking of God's Holy Spirit, this is your time. Your time 
to intersect with the God of eternal time in time now. And if that is true, you will know because the Holy Spirit will convince you and you will keep listening. Now, let's speed up. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman. Sent means sent from a previous state. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he did not come into existence at Bethlehem or in his mother's womb. He has always existed. One of three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. John, in his gospel, explains this very clearly. His marvelous words, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Who is the baby then in Bethlehem? This is what you sing. This is what you hear in Waitrose. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Hail, thou ever blessed morn. Christ is born in Bethlehem. He who in a manger lies is the one who built the starry skies. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son. God sent forth the second person of the Trinity. God from glory. Born of woman. Fully man. Fully human. And John's words again, the words became flesh and dwelt among us. John Wesley's carol, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Now let me just stop and pause and just say, if you are not a Christian, could anyone invent this? I mean, if a council of people like me 2,000 years ago sat down and said, let's spin this story in a way that's plausible, would you invent it like this? There is just no way that these Bible writers could sit down and make it up like this. And that's what makes it so believable. Because it is true. So, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, fully God, born of woman, fully man, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Now, what does that mean? Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. We cannot keep the precepts of the law because of our sin. Therefore, we cannot fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, and therefore we remain under the curse of the law, which is death and eternal judgment. And so we need a Savior. Yes, but that Savior, in order to save, needs to keep the precepts of the law, needs to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, and needed to take our place in his death to redeem us, from the curse of the law. Now, it's hard, it's, well, it's not hard. It's just wonderful if you get your head around this. Let me just give you some statements to help you. Jesus fulfilled the precepts of the law as our representative. He exhausted the penalty of the law as our substitute. He is the only Savior because He is the only one qualified to be a Savior. If God saves, the Savior must be God. If man must bear the punishment for sin, the Savior must be a man. 
If the man who bears the punishment for sin must be sinless, then it must be the one man, Jesus. There is no other way by which men and women can be saved other than through the one and only, the unique Jesus qualified to be a savior. So not all religions lead to God. Only Jesus. Why do you think it is that the symbol of Christianity is a cross? Why do you think it is that the symbol of Islam is a set of scales? Now listen again to these words. Low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. He who throned in heights of lime sits amid the cherubim. Listen. Listen to what you sing. Hail, thou ever blessed morn. Hail, redemptions. Happy dawn. Now have you understood that? Well, I hope so. Here's a story in a sermon I was listening to. I never believe uh, these stories are true, but uh, let's just believe that this one might be. Uh, an old woman crippled by debt. It's a, good, uh, it's a good metaphor. An old woman crippled by debt. She lives alone in isolation, fearing her debts of being called in. A local church heard about her. A number of people decided they would pay her debts. The minister went to see her. He knocked on the door. There was no answer. She wouldn't let him in. So the minister left thinking he'd gone to the wrong address or that something had happened. So he asked around and he said, yes, she is there. She never comes out. So he went back and knocked on the door and shouted through the letterbox, we've not come to call in your debts. We've come to pay your debts for you. Let us in. Let us in. Now, Jesus Christ came to pay our debts to redeem us from the curse of the law. The curse that we bear without Christ, which is death and everlasting judgment. But through his death on the cross, we are redeemed from the curse of the law. How is it ours? By faith alone. As we cling to the cross of Christ alone. So look in the mirror at your sin and face up to the curse you live under. Look to the manger and see the one who built the starry skies, born God-made man, and sing, Hail, Redemption's happy dawn. That's Christmas Day. And look to the cross of Calvary, where Christ Jesus redeemed you for the curse of the law, and sing, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer. The promise. What promise? The promise made to Abraham. The promise made to Abraham. Why are some of you laughing at me? Have I done something wrong? Do you know how serious this stuff is? Don't mock God. Don't mock God. All eternity in hell without Jesus. All eternity without him. Don't mock him. The fullness of the time has come. And I wrote here, the turkey is nearly done. That doesn't kind of sit with the mood of the moment, does it? <laughs> Ministers should be urgent about their messages. Surely they should. Let me finish with two great, great encouragements for you. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as his sons. So that it is not enough to be saved. No. It is not enough to be called into the family of God. Second cousins twice removed. No. Salvation in Jesus means we receive adoption as sons. Children of God with the full rights and privileges of the Son of God, Jesus. You wouldn't make that bit up even if you had made the rest of the stuff up that the promise to those who trust in Jesus is adoption as sons. It's extraordinary. It's astonishing. And if children, verse 7, then we are heirs with Christ of the everlasting, glorious kingdom of God that is the new creation. Now, a sermon like this might convince you and me that we are more sinful than we ever thought, but I pray with all my heart that this sermon will convince you that you are more loved than you ever, ever thought possible. To be convicted of sin and its consequences is necessary for you to feel your need, to want salvation, to be convicted by His grace and mercy and love is simply overwhelming. Under the curse of the law, facing everlasting judgment, and now under grace, adopted as children, co-heirs with Jesus. Finally, verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Think of a couple who adopt a child. Some of you may be adopted. Some of you might have adopted a child. From the moment the adoption papers are signed and that child is legally adopted, their status has changed. They are part of a new family. They are a child in that family. They have rights and privileges. Imagine, say, their father, their new father, leaving the office where the papers were signed with the signed papers in his pocket. Is that oh, the extent of the relationship he hopes and longs and prays for his newly adopted child? They take the child home. They show the child to their bedroom. They feed the child. They love the child. But it all feels a bit strange. And then one day, what was long for happens, the adopted child says, Daddy. And likewise, our God in heaven is not content with having adoption papers in his coat pocket. He wants us to experience what it means to be his child. He wants us to enter into the existential wonder of what it means to be a child of God. And that is one of the reasons He gives us the Spirit of His Son. He puts the Holy Spirit into us that we might know Him, love Him, and call Him Father. Do you know, I've been a minister for long enough now to know all sorts of fancy theology. You know what the giveaway to me of someone who is a true Christian? They say, Father and Jesus. Father. Jesus. Please do not give a nod once a year to the baby in a manger. All of your eternal destiny matters in how you respond. I pray that you will come to understand the magnificent significance of Christmas. And that's what happy Christmas really means. Let's pray.
Our Father, forgive the errors of what we say. Forgive the urgency that sometimes spills over into real conviction. We pray, Lord, that this Christmas time we will come to understand the magnificent significance of Christmas. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, no longer slaves but sons, and if sons, therefore heirs through God. Help us, Lord, not to give a nod to the baby in the manger, but to praise Him for who He is. And all this we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.